I'm Eric. And I'm Matt. And together we are Ranking 76, so we are interrupting your normally scheduled podcast just to talk about... The Wild West. A cold, dangerous, merciless place. A place of lawlessness and violence. Join us on our adventure as we take you through the trials and sacrifices the settlers and Native Americans took to shape the... (coughs) Dear God, man, are you okay? That hurt my throat. I'm okay. Okay, well, while Matt's recovering, I'm just going to take an opportunity to tell you that we review and rank the heroes and villains of the American West and then divide them up on our own individual teams, and then at the end, we're going to face them off in each other to see who can build the best team in the West. And Matt, have you have you recovered? Join us! Okay, back to your regular show, everyone. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 119, Pope Benedict IV. You said, you said Benedicts are a bunch. Oh, I think you're thinking of Sergii. All of the Sergii are a bunch, and there are some coming up. But I will Mm. tell you that in researching this episode... This one is a little strange. The strangest thing kept happening while researching Pope Benedict IV, okay? So I came across various sources claiming to be talking about Benedict IV, but in almost every case, they were talking about a different Benedict. Oh. Like this guy, for some reason, is an absolute magnet for misidentification. No, that I hate when that happens. <laughs> yeah, I found an article written by a woman who was lamenting the resignation of Benedict the Sixteenth because getting a liberal pope would be a sad, sad day in history. Poor woman. But calling him Benedict the Fourth. So again, she has no clue what she's actually talking about. And then I found a podcast. An episode by a podcast that I will not name that was discussing Benedict the Ninth and calling him Benedict the Fourth instead. So that's just the start of a multitude of bad information I had to wade through to try and find something that is actually called Benedict the Fourth about Benedict the Fourth. Oh boy, okay. <laughs> yeah, so apparently everyone just incorrectly labels popes. Benedict the Fourth, and we need to set the record straight about the real Benedict the Fourth. Will the real Benny please stand up? That's that's what we're gonna do today. Oh, okay. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's gonna be exciting, but at least we'd be talking about the actual Benedict the Fourth. Okay, so <laughs> Benedict the Fourth was born in Rome somewhere around the 840s, and his father was called Mammalus. Mammalus. I knew you'd like that. Mammals. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) A mammal. He sure is. He is a mammal. Now, based on what little record we have on him, which mostly comes from his epitaph, we know that he was likely of the nobility and that he had a fair bit of personal wealth. This is a rich man. Our cheerful source, Floatered, praises Benedict highly citing public generosity and care for the poor, 
and that when Benedict entered the church, he divested himself of all his personal wealth to give to the needy. And for this generosity, Floatard goes so far as to call him Benedict the Great. <laughs> okay, Floatard. <laughs> but Floatard and only Floatard is the person to use this epitaph. No one else will be calling this man Benedict the Great, so he's not going to go and hang out with Leo and Gregory and Nicholas, and he does not get a jingle, because it's, it's not even close. But Floatard would like to think so. So anyways, Benedict entered the church and was ordained as a priest by Formosus. Note there. But that's all we know about him and his church career until the death of Pope John IX, when Benedict is elected to succeed him on February 1st, 900. There doesn't even seem to be any commentary about his election or like where he stood in the current political conflicts. This is our first non-openly factional pope in quite a while. Kind of exciting. Maybe we're getting through this. But then as Pope, Benedict begins his pontificate in a similar way that all of his predecessors lately have and convenes a synod where he once again decrees that any consecrations or ordinations conducted by Pope Formosus were valid and standing, which also validated the synods of Pope John IX, who had said the same thing. And just like John IX, this was of particular importance to Benedict, most likely, since he was one of those clerics who had received his ordination from Formosus. So all of this begins to feel a little bit like the ecumenical councils where you can't get to any new business until you sit there and officially acclaim and confirm everything that has happened from all the councils before you. Ugh. Yeah, we're just doing that every time. Every time. But this one goes a little bit further, because either in this synod, or one that's held very, very soon after, on June 17th of 900, Pope Benedict excommunicates Baldwin II, the Margrave of Flanders, for having the Archbishop of Reims, called Folk, murdered. Okay, yeah. we're getting somewhere now. Can't we're getting somewhere. be murdering people. Don't be murdering the Bishop of Reims. <laughs> so to get into this context, basically, the King of West Francia, Charles the Simple, had confiscated some lands Terrible. from this man. I, I know they're all named Charles, but can we give them better names? <laughs> than Charles the Simple? Yeah, I really hate <laughs> the idea. I don't know. Like, imagine what you would be called if you were a Charles and then were dead <laughs> in that era. Like, imagine, imagine, just imagine. <laughs> well, I want to remind you that some of our other top players have been Charles the Fat and Charles the Bald. So. I know, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> it's not a good I, time. I don't know, you'd end up being Bree the Redhead. And like, what a, what a mark to leave on history. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I would be. I would prefer <laughs> to be like Bree the Weird, but you know. At least I'm not the simple, the bald, or the fat. I mean, it's, they're just, they're, they tend to be not very nice. But this is Charles the Simple. He is the king of West Francia, and he has confiscated some lands from Baldwin of Flanders, including the Abbey of St. Vast, which was then given to the Archbishop Folk. And Baldwin was like, no, no, I don't like this at all. Give me my land back. And Folk... <laughs> The archbishop is like, 
no, I don't feel like doing that. And this enraged the Margrave. And so he dispatched a group of men led by a man called Weinmar, who then just straight up murder the archbishop. <sighs> You're not going to give me my land back? You did now. That's pretty much what it boils down to. And this was a big scandal and big outrage and required severe consequences, right? You can't just be stomping into a church and murdering people. You can't just kill people, Carl. Carl <laughs> that murders people. <laughs> Well, and it sets a dangerous precedent that we're going to see some serious consequences to when we see that on a larger scale in the future. So Benedict is trying to put an end to it now. So at Benedict's Synod, he passes an excommunication against Baldwin, Weinmar, and all of the conspirators and instructed all of the Frankish bishops to spread the news of the excommunication throughout all of the kingdoms of the former Carolingian Empire and for all the provinces of Charles' kingdom to repeat and confirm the condemnation in their own diocese. So he's using like a full-scale excommunication, and he wants this to go all the way across the empire, and everyone knows about it, so nobody should be interacting with these men. Okay. Now, from Horace K. Mann, we know that Weinmar, the actual assassin, died from, quote, a most loathsome disease, still while under the excommunication. But he also says that Baldwin later would have the contentious abbey returned to him as a gift from King Charles. So clearly, at some point, Baldwin and Charles the Simple made up. They're friends now. Yeah, they, they get over... A loathsome disease. I'm sorry, I have... Loathsome... What is a what me yeah what makes a disease loathsome like I don't like COVID nineteen but is it <laughs> loathsome possibly it seems more like on the wasting <laughs> sort of scale they don't actually speculate or discuss it in any details so we don't know if it was pussy and loathsome or like full of maggots like Arnulf do you know, we find him things. loathsome is that what's happening. Well, yes, because he's excommunicated, so he is a loathsome person dying of a loathsome disease, essentially. Ah, uh, all the way down. Mm-hmm. But we don't know exactly what caused Charles and Baldwin to make up, because this is going to happen much longer after Benedict's papacy, like 18 years later. So, unfortunately, it doesn't play in anymore to this episode. <laughs> We'll talk about it later, maybe. <laughs> well, at that point, they're just, they're not as important as some other people that we're going to deal with. Because now we have to go back and deal with the complicated political situation facing the rest of Italy and the imperial title. Now, last week, we briefly discussed the ongoing conflict between Berengar and Emperor Lambert with the eventual death of Lambert that had left Berengar in charge of Italy. But what happens next is going to be heavily influenced by a force we have yet to introduce. And this is the Magyars. Are you ready for the Magyars? I am not. My whole brain just went straight to that post Carlos put in like a couple weeks ago where it was like Jeb Bush is now the Holy Roman Emperor. <laughs> and that's it. Like... Well, the Magyars are going to be Jeb Bush, and they're going to take over a lot of people. So 
The Magyars are a tribal people of the Ural mountain range who have begun to expand and conquer westward throughout the 9th century, including the area that will one day become modern-day Hungary. So in, this, in a lot of the sources, they're going to be called both Magyars and Hungarians, and we can sort of loosely conceptualize them as Hungarians. And they are on the move. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a tribal nation. Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> well, I didn't say they're nomadic. Un- <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but they are really on the move, okay? So by the time that Berengar assumes Italy, the Magyars, under the leadership of a man called Arpad, or Arpid, had defeated and absorbed the Bulgars, the Moravians, some of Pannonia, were invading and raging through East and West Francia, and were on the borders ready to invade Northern Italy. They're everywhere. How many people do they have? How many? Like, that's insane. Like, the force. Well, they're absorbing all these places as they're going, too. So they've absorbed the Bulgars and the Moravians and some of the Pannonians. And now they're everywhere. And now they're on the border of Northern Italy, ready to invade. And invade they did. In fact, there's a fair bit of suggestion that the Magyars turned their attention on Italy at the invitation of Arnulf, who isn't quite dead yet, specifically to make trouble for Berengar. Remember when we made mention that Arnulf and Berengar had probably had a falling out? Yes. If this is to be believed, then the Magyars are part of Arnulf's retribution during that fallout. Goodness. All right. And this is not a force to be trifled with. They were making their mark as they went. Liutprand of Cremona describes the Magyars destroying castles, burning churches, slaughtering communities en masse, and, quote, drinking the blood of their victims so they would be feared more and more. Not great. Uh, All right. Yeah, it's not a good look, but we know drinking blood is something they like to throw at scary enemies. So Berengar and his troops meet the Magyars along the Brenta River. And if we take the account of Lutpran of Cremona, he claims that when the Magyars surveyed the size of Berengar's forces, they were actually prepared to make terms. But Berengar rejected their offer, which led to the Battle of the Brenta on September 24th of 899. And this went... So, so poorly for Berengar. He was defeated handily, losing 20,000 men, resulting in significant Hungarian pillaging through to Milan and Pavia, unstable border protection that ensured future raids would be certain and frequent. So not taking those terms had been a giant mistake. I don't know my um, Italian... Geography, how far down from the border is Milan? Milan is considered one of the more nor- the northernmost of the big cities. So it's, it's not terribly far down, but it's a pretty good chunk away from the border. And if they're going down to Pavia as well, that's further down. Let me pull you up a map. A map. Show me. Show me where they invaded. Yes. Okay. So you'll see Milan is, is closer to 
to Switzerland. It's just a little bit more north than Turin is, and Pavia is a little bit further down than that. Okay, I see. I see, I see. So they came all that way down, and they're just pillaging, and now there's no secure border. Berengar's lost 20,000 men. It's, it's not good, and he could have just made terms. So, naturally, all of the nobles of Italy blamed this exceptional defeat on Berengar, and he quickly lost their support. Oh, and then around this time, Arnulf dies. So, yeah, Italy was in need of a new overlord, capable of providing stability and adequate protection against not only the Magyars, who are now coming in, but the Saracens, who have certainly not ceased to be a problem in all of this time. And so the Italian nobles, led by Adalbert II, the Margrave of Tuscany, who will keep popping up, decide to approach the King of Provence. Louis. Louis will be known to us as Louis the Blind, although not yet. Do you like that better than simple? <laughs> he gets blinded at some point? Yeah. Uh, that'll be coming. Is this a vinegar in the eyes situation or a stab or a, like, maybe just a degenerative thing? Oh, it's definitely not degenerative. That's all I'm going to give you. We'll get there in the future. <laughs> not today, but at some point. So let's talk about Louis. We can also call him Louis III. He's still not quite Louis III quite yet, but Louis III, Louis the Blind. This is who we're talking about. Louis has a very prominent Carolinian lineage. So he is the maternal grandson of Emperor Louis II. He's the son of Count Bozo, whom... Pope John VIII had wanted to crown as emperor, and he's also the adopted son of Emperor Charles the Fat. So this has already given him quite a bit of prestige as far as an imperial title was concerned, and he's looking pretty good to the Italians who really need someone to come in and set some borders. So the Italian nobles invite Louis to come to Italy to seize control from Berengar and end the political strife once and for all. Because that always works out so well. Um, sure. I, I have never seen the end of political strife. <laughs> I know. And, and neither will Italy at this point. The Italian nobles are, are such a flighty, flaky, inconstant bunch. And we're going to see this so much for the next little while that they'll just be like, Ah, you sound like a good king. Come and lead us. Ah, we don't like you anymore. We're going to invite someone else. And this is going to be a cycle. But for now, the one that they're asking to come is Louis the Blind. And Louis comes with an army, and he marches to Pavia, where he's hailed by the nobles and acknowledged as king of Italy. And when Louis met Berengar in conflict, Horace K. Mann says, quote, Louis commenced his struggle against Berengar with a campaign more brilliant than thorough. And it was enough to declare victory and force Berengar into retreat, which is, you know, not terribly surprising considering he just lost 20,000 men to the Magyars. Now, we've been discussing this a lot, and we haven't really involved the Pope up until this point. And that's because there is no record at this point of any involvement of the Pope in this negotiation, 
between the nobles and Louis of Provence. However, Louis does come to Rome, and in February of 901, Pope Benedict crowned Louis as the new emperor. Now we can call him Louis III. So we can assume that the Pope was in support of this move, even if he wasn't a major player. There's no suggestion that the Pope was coerced or forced into this coronation, but unfortunately this is mostly because we have a lack of detail, such as the age. We don't know how excited he was about this or not. Either way, this is a nice little unexpected reinforcement of papal primacy as the Pope's role of morally legitimating imperial authority is reinforced when an emperor comes down to Rome to have a proper and valid consecration. Unfortunately, as it <laughs> turns out, if the nobles thought that Louis was going to be able to do a better job defending Italy from the Magyar invasions, they were incorrect. Invasions and raids continued, and before long, many of the nobles shifted their loyalty back to Berengar including Adalbert, who continues to be the linchpin. This is the guy who started the whole thing with Louis in the first place. So, in 902, Berengar had rebuilt his forces, and he forces Louis out. Quoting from Liutprand of Cremona, Berengar set out against him, and when Louis realized Berengar was coming against him and had great number of troops, while his were few, Impelled by fear, he made a promise to Berengar by swearing that if Berengar would let him off then, he would not come back to Italy, even if summoned by other promises. For Berengar made the very mighty Margrave of the Tuscans, Adalbert, very loyal to himself, having given him many gifts, and on account of this, Louis was driven out so easily. Man, that sentence structure, <laughs> he made the guy loyal to himself by giving him gifts yes <laughs> like adalbert's the guy when you have adalbert on your side anything is possible so we're going to give adalbert a lot of gifts and because of that and because he was the guy that originally brought louis in the first place they're going to be able to drive louis out very easily that's fair but i yeah. like the implications that he gave this guy a bunch of gifts and that guy was like these are for me and i'm going to take my ball and play by myself <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a very accurate description of adalbert in general we're far <laughs> from being done with him <laughs> now interestingly at this point there isn't a push to depose louis of the imperial crown he still gets to be emperor but Berengar did compel Louis to swear an oath to go back to Provence and never return to Italy. Now, this is certainly not the end of the conflict because Louis's not going to keep that oath and he's going to end up being Louis the Blind. But he will for the duration of Benedict's papacy. So we're going to leave it there. Because Benedict was involved in some minor church affairs as well that we need to talk about. In one event, he sent letters of support to Malicinus, the Bishop of Amasia, when his diocese was conquered by Saracen Muslims and he was forced into exile. So Benedict bids him to come to Rome. Very nice, you know, maybe don't stay there and die if your diocese is being completely conquered. Come to me, I'll keep you safe. But the other thing that only gets sort of offhandedly mentioned, but definitely deserves a closer look, 
has to do with Stephen, the Bishop of Sorrento. Now this, this should jog you for, for a moment. So Stephen of Sorrento had been forcibly deposed and sent into exile by the people of Sorrento. They did not like him as bishop. And like we usually see when Stephen attempted to appeal to the Pope about his deposition, the people got in the way. They tried to stop this. However, Stephen was able to get a letter of appeal to the Pope, who judged that Stephen's deposition was uncanonical and ordered the people of Sorrento to restore him to his diocese. But the people were not having this. This is adamantly rejected by them. And Stephen wasn't able to reassume his position, likely due to threat of violence. Yeah, I was like, are they going to murder him? They don't want him here. Yeah, they were straight up prepared to murder this man if he tried to be bishop again. Now, unfortunately, we don't know why he's being forced out of the city like this. We don't know what he was doing that made him so objectionable to the people. But what we do know is that Stephen is from a very powerful Neapolitan family. So the likelihood is that this has to do with political factionalism. They didn't like their ice cream. It's fine. <laughs> He's not about, not about that delicious ice cream. So Pope Benedict then arranges for Stephen to go to his brother, Athanasius II, who was currently serving as both the bishop and the Duke of Naples at the time. He's an interesting character. We might have to cover him at another time. Bishop and Duke seems... Yeah! wrong. It's very interesting. That whole situation is strange. That seems illegal. <laughs> it, it should be. It definitely should be. But Benedict is currently just trying to deal with his brother Stephen, who's been forcibly expelled from Sorrento and isn't going back. So he says, go stay with your brother who's acting as the bishop and the duke. Fine. This is fine. But then Athanasius, the bishop duke, dies. And according to Horace K. Mann and our contemporary source, Auxilius, this is followed by a thing that shouldn't happen happening. The people of Naples wanted Stephen to succeed his brother and, quote, by the authority of Pope Benedict IV and the written consent of the clergy of the Holy Roman Church, and by two bishops, Romanus and Cosmatis, sent from Rome for the purpose, he was enthroned in the Episcopal chair of Naples, not to satisfy vainglory or for the gratification of the sensual appetite or for the pomp, but, as we have said, to save the Episcopal palace and its dependents for the benefit of the poor and to bring about the peace between Capua and Naples. So did you catch that? They have now consecrated a bishop from one see to a new see. Yeah, and he got kicked out. Like, why did this? Why did the people in Naples like him? Oh yeah, they absolutely wanted him. They were very excited about him being there. But this is not a thing. I have so many questions. <laughs> he is now gone from the see of Sorrento to the see of Naples. And has actually been consecrated to both seas. This is not a thing that you're supposed to do. It's illegal. He has to give up the one he can't go back to. Yeah, exactly. But you're not supposed to be able to do that. And it's very unclear, one, why the Pope chooses to make such an exception, given the whole 
formosus cadaver synod that was all about this it's whatever it's it's whatever (laughs) it's weird and what's weirder is that none of the other sources seem to comment that it's weird Everyone's just like, yep, this is a thing that happened. But anybody looking back at this and thinking about all the drama that's just happened in canon law, we're going, what do you mean? He's, he's, a, he's a duke bishop now. It, it makes the most sense. He can't go back to the other place because they're going to stab him. Yep. So they're going to ignore the, one of the major foundational tenets of this situation. Yeah, so it's strange. And that that was a choice that Pope Benedict IV made. But then he died on July 30th of 903, not long after the departure of Louis III back to Provence. So he does not have a particularly long papacy. A lot of drama between other people. So much drama between other people and no commentary about what role he plays in that drama. I think we talked about other people more than we talked about him. Absolutely. Although he is going to have like a little bit of drama here at the end because his death is ruled as mysterious. They're all mysterious right now. They are. (laughs) They are all mysterious at this point. I'm trying. (laughs) It's not special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen the mysterious deaths. Now, various sources suggest that Berengar might have arranged to have him killed, given that he was at least on board with the Louis the Blind plan for the time that he was there. But of course, just like all the other ones, yeah, 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 we don't have any evidence (laughs) for this. Now, he was buried not in St. Peter's, but outside of St. Peter's in front of the building in a marble mausoleum. That gets destroyed. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) I know. This could have been the chance to finally have one that wouldn't be destroyed, right? But by the time of the construction of New St. Peter's, the tomb was in such bad condition and had irreparable weather damage, so they decided to destroy it anyways. Boo. (laughs) So. But his epitaph at least has remained, which, by the way, Definitely seems like it was written by Floatered again, so. Floatered is just a happy man who wants to write happy things. He is such a happy source, and he's so, like, polite. We cannot get down on him. We cannot. No, especially because most of the other sources that we're dealing with from the time period, Leoprand of Cremona, who's the saltiest, angriest, grumpiest man on the planet, and then Bartolomeo Platina, looking back, who's also the saltiest man. Uh, we're eating our own vomit or something. <laughs> exactly. So it's nice to have a little cheery floater in here. So here is the epitaph he wrote for Benedict IV. Here rests the members of Benedict IV, a great pontiff, an outstaging bishop, who being worthy was rightly called Benedict by name, since he was generous and good to all. He was an ornament of his race and a rich glory of godliness. He adorned his every work by mediating on God's commands. He acquired heaven by using his private wealth for the public good, for he gave away all his possessions and continuously cared for the despised widows and helpless orphans whom he treated like his own children. You who look on this tomb, say with stung heart, O Benedict, may you reign with Christ our God. 
so lovely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot less salty. So with that, that's Benedict. And now it is time to rate him. All right. Papatum infalium. So now we're going to go to Bartolomeo Platina for a minute, because again, he has nothing positive to say about the imperial situation or the papacy of this age. But this is what he has to say about Benedict. Yet this may be said for Benedict, that in this debauched age, he carried himself with gravity and constancy. So even he likes this guy a little bit. A little bit, yeah. That's remarkable in its own way. Other than that, he excommunicated the murderer of Archbishop Folk of Reims, which is a very necessary act at the time. We know that a precedent of killing bishops is not going to be a good one, and the church is going to lose an upper hand in doing so, so this was a good and powerful statement. But there's also this strange situation with Stephen of Sorrento, where he gets transferred between a bishopric see, so this potentially sets a bad precedent. Yeah. Kind of hard to rate. It is. Um, I don't know. I'm feeling like a two- Yeah, it's definitely not very high because there's not a lot going on and there's not a lot that's good or bad against him. So it kind of balances out. I'm going to give him no more than a three. I'm matching your two and I'm giving him a point just because Platina has something nice to say about him. So that gives him a five in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum? I mean, nothing. He's considered a very nice man. He, he doesn't have any time to really do anything bad to anybody. It's a zero. A zero. Seculari impactum. Well, first off, we know from Floater that he was giving away his actual wealth. He's, he's doing his part to actually improve the life of other people. He also crowns Louis of Provence as the next emperor. But there's not really any evidence that he has a lot of agency in this situation. That doesn't mean he didn't play a role, as we know popes are supposed to be directly responsible for the choice of emperor, but it's equally likely that he could have just gone along with it because it was was easier and for stability. Uh, We know that Louis's role in Italy is going to be short and ineffective, so if it was his choice, it wasn't a great one. However, we can ask the question, what would have happened if he'd supported Berengar? He was also ineffective at protecting Italy from the Magyar invasions. So again, this is a a hard one to judge because there isn't really a right decision at this moment in time other than becoming a warrior pope, which he didn't have enough time to do. Yeah, okay. Um, It's not a zero. zero. It's definitely not a zero. Um, Can we go with another two? Yeah, I think that's about right. I think if we give him twos, he gets a four. It feels right. Perfect. Fossium Sanctus. Are you ready to see this man's face? Probably, as long as you got the right guy. (laughs) I know! I have definitely gotten the right guy on this one. I have looked painstakingly into this man. So, (laughs) there he is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it looks like someone shouted his name from across the room. <laughs> There's definitely an oh facial hey, expression Benny. going on here. <laughs> Will the real Benny please stand up? Huh? <laughs> I guess I should. Me? 
There is another version of this same picture where the huh is a little bit less Yeah, that's obvious, less, less huh. but it's still there. It's still there. I kind of like it. It's it's the first like real expression in a long time in a long time i'm gonna give it an eight what a good expression eight yeah it is good is there anything else we should comment on based on his appearance he he looks a fair bit younger than most of our posts um i mean he's still got dark hair like but it's definitely salt and pepper his beard is one of those Mm -hmm. where you know it's white and it's all yellowed up in there (laughs) <laughs> a dirty beard? Ew. I don't know if it's dirty, just stained. I mean, to me, it looks like, you know how there are a lot of dark-headed men who will get, like, a ginger beard? Mm, yeah. It kind of has that gingery quality about just... it. But that also is very different between the two versions of this yeah. image, because it is much whiter so much in whiter. the other version. He looks older in that version, but... I like the bigger version, so I'll give it to him. I think I'm going to match your eight because it is it is very excellent. The expression alone is worth seeing. So that will give him a 16 in Facium Sanctus, which gives him a full score of four. <laughs> Tempus Pontificus. So February 1st, 900 to July 903, three years, a score of 0. 0.75. Okay. Not bad, but, like, not long either. No, it's not very long. This is not an era of super long popes. For for a little bit still. We're getting closer to some slightly longer reigns, but they're also slightly longer reigns full of drama, so Mm -hmm. that's coming. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do-do-do-do-do! Nope, not a saint. Didn't do enough. Didn't really do much of anything. Which brings us to his total score, which is a 13.75. It's not bad. Not the lowest. He's in that middle of the teen pack there. Yeah, he is. He's in 88th place currently. Just, yeah, just where you should be. Sort of middling sort of popiness. He didn't really do enough. The Pope before him, John IX, is in 66th place. But Theodore II is in 97th place. So, yeah, smack dab right in the middle of them seems about right. So now I must ask you, Fry, a question I already know. Yeah, why are we asking? (laughs) Because it's the formula. Mm. So is he papally enough? And pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? No. No. Definitely not. But Floatered really liked him. So there's that. I think Floatered likes everybody. It's true. Floatered is is very fond of most of the popes that he's writing about. However, we have now truly and verifiably covered the life of the real Benedict the Fourth. Not Benedict the Sixth, not Benedict the Ninth, not Benedict the Sixteenth, the real Benedict the Fourth. And even though it's not that impressive, we have done his memory a service. <laughs> so I'm very proud of that. But that brings us to the end of our episode. But first, we have a thank you to make. And we have a patron to absolve of his temporal sins and punishments. So thank you to 
Kevin Q. Oh, that's the new guy in the Discord. That's the new guy in the Conclave, <laughs> who sent us all sorts of fun stuff that we're going to be talking about in uh, one of our upcoming Patreon episodes. Yep. Which might be out by the time that we do this, based by on... By the time this happens. <laughs> yep, for sure. Oh, timelines. Timelines. Building a backlog. Making these things happen so you can actually hear us again. Oh, the behind the curtain speaks. Ego te absolvo. But with that, we can say thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. You can find his show, Popular History, on all major podcatching platforms, and keep an eye out for his new show, Arexipod Ranking Cardinals, Cardinal Numbers. You can also reach Greg at popularhistory at gmail.com. Get it? It's popular, but with an E, for the Popes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com, and we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist, or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm.